Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. That's the music of the Tulsa-based Ernie Fields Big Band, recorded during their months in New York in 1939. The Fields Band was one of the most long-lived territory bands of the 1930s, presenting their music, which shifted with popular musical taste, well into the 1960s. And through those 30-plus years, a who's who of American jazz played in his band. Earl Bostick, Don Bias, Teddy Edwards, Booker Irwin, J.J. Johnson, Yusef Latif, Benny Powell, and Hal Singer were just a few of the prominent jazz musicians who spent time ranging from a few months to a few years playing in the Fields Band. For Fields' daughter Carmen, it's been a long journey to tell her father's story. In fact, her work started well before Ernie's death in 1997, and finally her book on his life and the times he lived in has come to fruition. Going back to T-Town, the Ernie Fields Territory Big Band tells his story, but also the story of his times, how territory bands existed in the 30s, what touring in the Deep South was like for African-American bands, about the segregation in music. Fields, in fact, founded the Black Musicians Local here in Tulsa. He also discussed the vagary of the music business, what might have been, as Fields was discovered by John Hammond, the noted talent agent. But when things didn't work out initially, he returned to Tulsa for the rest of his career. Carmen Fields is an Emmy Award-winning journalist in Boston. She was uh, the writer of the American Experience's PBS documentary, Going Back to T-Town, one of the very first national television accounts of Greenwood and the Tulsa Race Massacre. She'll have a book launch party Saturday at 1 at First Baptist Church, North Tulsa, at 1414 North Greenwood. She'll be talking about the book and signing. And then Saturday evening at 7 o'clock, she'll be at the Oklahoma Blues Hall of Fame, in Rentiesville, Oklahoma, just uh, south of uh, Muskogee. She's my guest today on Studio Tulsa. Carmen Fields, it's such a pleasure to speak with you again. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for your invitation. Yeah, this book, I know it has to be a labor of love to write a book about your father, who was such an important musician in our community and throughout America in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and even into the 60s. He was this wonderful band leader, Tons of great musicians went through his band over the years. Tell me about putting this down on paper and telling his story. Well, you are correct. It is a labor of love, and it took long, much longer than I anticipated. When I started the project, my father was still alive. I think it was in the mid-'80s that we started talking about the possibility of a book and capturing some of the many stories that he had repeated over and over that I'd heard and half heard and half ignored. <laughs> uh, but I, as time went on, I became increasingly aware of his significance. And I guess a little annoyed that his name was not listed in a lot of the anthologies or along with some of his contemporaries at the time, like Count Basie or Duke Ellington. And so I set out to set the record straight. And so putting aside uh, the familial love, as a journalist, what do you think his reputation should be? I think in terms of so-called territory bands, his special nook or niche in history is the fact that he 
worked for as long as he did from the late 20s into the 60s, and also that he had the opportunity to record. A lot of the musicians of his ilk or band leaders of his ilk were very fine musicians and led very fine organizations, but did not have the opportunity to record. So I thought that set him a little apart and made him deserving of some recognition in the history books. And I also think that longevity is a big part of it because uh, territory bands are often short-lived. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, from the 20s to the 60s, that's a good 40 years. He survived the Depression. He survived the, after World War II, uh, depths of uh, big band music, if you will. There was a period where it wasn't popular at all. And he reinvented himself in the 1950s as sort of an R&B big band, if you will. He was very conscious of pleasing an audience. And whether that was an audience in the 30s or the 60s, in the early days, he took pride in having from time to time someone who played violin because at the, that uh, point, uh, Claude Williams was coming into yeah. prominence and violins were very much a part of Bob Wills' organization, Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. And he liked to, as he said, throw in a little country and Western uh, from time to time if the audience uh, was looking for that or appreciated that. So in keeping up with the times, his whole motivation was pleasing an audience. Well, interestingly, uh, while this book is certainly about your father's life and experiences, it also gives readers a little bit of history and insight into North Tulsa in those decades after the race massacre uh, during segregated Tulsa. Uh, the life of territory bands in the 30s through the 50s, and living and working in Jim Crow South. So you tell a lot of stories in this book. Was that a deliberate aim to sort of help help us understand well, I, the man I that Ernie was? I was seeking to put a context on the era and what was happening. And one thing that struck me was He's traveling around the country and different places in the South and the North, anywhere, had different customs when it came to uh, black people. And you never knew when you were going to offend or break some unwritten rule or written rule that you weren't aware of. So I wanted to put a, a context on how people survived during that time. And it was a time when you didn't know if you smiled too much or didn't smile enough, it could be a life or death decision. Yeah. Well, you begin the book with uh, what was and could have been an even bigger break in Ernie's life. John Hammond, had, uh, who was the famous uh, talent agent who discovered all sorts of people in, in jazz and later in rock and roll, he was just this incredible talent spotter. Uh, he had discovered Count Basie, and he was coming back through the, the South for something else that uh, that had that sound of this part of the country. And he came upon Ernie Fields and uh, wanted to sign him and uh, get him to New York. Tell me the story about John Hammond. In fact, your father first didn't think it was really John Hammond. <laughs> <laughs> well... 
uh, John Hammond had been traveling and, and looking for new names. And when he was in the Kansas City area, several people mentioned uh, Ernie Fields and that he was based in Tulsa. So John Hammond came to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, one of my favorite stories was he was in a club and asked the waiter, uh, did he know how to get in touch with Ernie Fields? And so the waiter said, well, yes, he has a telephone. And would he mind calling him? And he did and uh, came back and told Hammond, well, he's he's not there. He's on the road traveling. And so John Hammond sent the waiter back to inquire when, you know, when he would be back. And the waiter came back and told him and then uh, said, well, tell him to give, I'm at the Mayo Hotel, give him my room number and have him call me when he gets in. And he gave the waiter a $5 bill. And the waiter says, I don't have change. And he says, well, that's yours. And the waiter goes back and calls my mother for the third time. And, you know, this is late at night, early in the morning. And he says, Mrs. Fields, I don't know who this man is, but he must be awful important because he gave me a $5 tip for a nickel phone call. You tell Ernie to be sure and call that man. <laughs> so uh, they did connect. Uh, my father comes home and sees the message with John Hammond's name because the name meant nothing to my mother. And he says, what is this? Who is this? And cut to the chase. He uh, wakes up the musicians the next day. John Hammond wants to hear them play. Uh, they met. Uh, they played. And uh, he was impressed and said he wanted uh, the booking agent, Willard Alexander, to also hear them and uh, made arrangements for them to meet in Wichita at another engagement. But all during that time, uh, one of the musicians, Melvin Moore, the vocalist, was insisting that it wasn't John Hammond. <laughs> Why? Because the man who was talking to them had a hold in his pants. And John Hammond is a millionaire, and he wouldn't be walking around. This is somebody just trying to have some fun with us. But lo and behold, as the story ends, John Hammond did appear in Wichita with Willard Alexander and made arrangements for their first big break uh, in New York City. In fact, they did uh, move to New York City despite some mishaps. Of, uh, this is so, it's such a very common story for out-of-towners to come to New York and leave their transportation for 30 seconds and everything's gone. And in this case, it was the band <laughs> uniforms. Uh, but, but they got started in New York. They had a few engagements and yet it was the height of the depression and so it was a difficult time and they weren't finding a lot of work and ernie had a decision to make i think his band was also talking about it as well whether to stay in new york and try to get it going or come back to tulsa and that you know this is just this is just one of those judgment things that sort of set the arc of your life really and i love the way you you portrayed this decision and he thought and thought about it uh, tell me what he decided and why he decided to do what he did. Well, he put it, uh, they were not working regularly. It was kind of catch as catch can, uh, but the Willard Alexander was doing, uh, I guess, his best uh, for them. Uh, but also he was uh, also working on behalf of Count Basie. So 
who knows how that dynamic played out, but uh, my father became discouraged. And I guess they had been there two, maybe three months. And um, they started worrying about, is it time to go go back? So he sought the counsel of Count Basie, who was a good friend, who he'd known Basie barnstormed around Oklahoma and Texas. And uh, so they became pals. And he asked uh, Basie, well, what should I do? And Basie says, oh, I, if I were you, I would stay. Because as long as you're here, you're Alexander's responsibility. And he knows uh, he'll look out for you. But as soon as you go back to Oklahoma, he's not responsible. Uh, so he thought and thought and made the decision to leave in concert with some of the musicians who said, well, we got more. We're leaving with more than we came with. Mm let's go back. And so he lined up some uh, engagements on the way back to Oklahoma and uh, away he went. Did he ever rue that decision in your view or from what you knew of, of, of what he talked about that decision? I wouldn't say that he rued the decision and he wasn't one inclined to regrets, but he did point out in one of the letters that I used in the book that he was expecting to be a big star in a short period of time. And when that didn't happen, that's when he made the decision. And perhaps he, if he had stuck around a little longer, it might have had a different outcome. And he always credited my mother with uh, never pressuring him to abandon the road or abandon music and had told him at the beginning, go to New York City, stay as long as you need to. You'll never hear me say, put down that horn. You had it when we when we met. You had the horn in your mouth when we met. Uh, so uh, I wish you luck. My guest today is Carmen Fields. She's a broadcast journalist in Boston, uh, the daughter of Ernie Fields, uh, the Tulsa band leader and territory band leader for 40 years. She is... Uh, uh, has worked in uh, Boston television for a number of years and uh, was the writer of the American Experience documentary, Going Back to T-Town, which is about the Tulsa Race Massacre. Uh, her latest project is Going Back to T-Town, another Going Back to T-Town. That's the name of uh, Ernie Fields' big hit. It's uh, subtitled The Ernie Fields Territory Big Band, and it's published by the University of Oklahoma Press. Out of that uh, trip to New York comes this big hit, Going Back to T-Town. Well, he, yeah, he wrote that, and uh, it's called T-Town Blues is the mm. title, and the first lyric is, I'm going back to T-Town. -town. Yeah. And that was one of the nine recordings that uh, John Hammond had arranged uh, for him to do while they were in New York City. I think it was September and October of 1939. But that was the one that caught on, if you will, and was a modest hit and that he re-recorded several times uh, in subsequent years with different personnel. But the importance of that very first one on the Vocalion label is the fact that Melvin Moore is a vocalist and Melvin Moore became a lifelong friend and he's the vocalist that my father prized most highly. He thought he was the most talented, most artistic, of the vocalists that uh, cycled through the organization. 
And this is one thing that Ernie had. Uh, certainly had a lot of musicians that would come through the band and go on, sometimes to bigger and better things, other times into other opportunities or out of music. Uh, but he had a core of group, a group of people that were with him through thick and thin, and Moore was one of those. Moore was one of those. And in fact, my father uh, did uh, blame Melvin Moore's loyalty to him and their friendship uh, for obscuring what might have been some other opportunities. He believed that Moore stayed with the band too long hmm. and that he should have uh, gone on to, to other things. But uh, Moore didn't feel the same way. He just said, I wanted to sing, and I'm, you know, he's happy with the way things turned out. But uh, that was one aspect that uh, Dad did feel that their loyalty may have prevented more career heights for Melvin Moore. I know you talked to a lot of musicians that were in and out of, of his band. What was their key remembrance of their time, whether it was only a few weeks or or a few months, or maybe only a year. What were their key remembrances of your father that really stuck out to you? Oh, wow. Uh, there are so, so many moments, uh, as they say. Uh, there's one gentleman, and I, I don't recall his name right this moment, mm. who was, I believe he was a trombonist, who was tasked with uh, kind of being the organizer and making sure people got made it to the rehearsals on time and made it on the bandstand. And he would keep tabs on people and keep a record for uh, fines because my dad was, a, a, he wasn't a tyrant, but he was a taskmaster and had certain expectations uh, for our band members. And this particular musician was so meticulous, he was known to fine himself for some infraction <laughs> or other. I was struck by uh, Jim Halsey's remarks, and he is a popular uh, booking agent, still uh, based in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, had quite um, uh, an array of organizations that he was affiliated with and helped promote. And he said he was always struck by Ernie Fields' integrity. And uh, he was a businessman, but he was an honest businessman. And so that that was a special moment to me. I was struck of the relationship between Big Chief Russell Moore, who was a Pima Indian, who was with the organization, and he went on to a significant fame. And the teasing that went back and forth between the musicians and Chief, because they, they would say, you you were there on the reservation and you didn't you didn't know you were free and dad noted that there were times that indians native americans were treated uh, better than african americans when they were on the road and then there were times when they weren't <laughs> and so i i thought that was an intriguing glimpse as of the times and what was happening and of course yourself latif the famous uh, saxophonist who was in the organization for several months before he changed his name to Yusef Latif. He was Bill Evans. And my father said he was Muslim minded even then. 
and would from time to time ask uh, if they were driving along on the bus and it was early in the morning, if you could pull the bus over and face sunrise so that he could pray. Mm. And uh, so that, you know, they're just uh, many uh, glimpses of the direction of others' lives and uh, the homage they paid uh, to dad. But I didn't, I don't remember hearing any complaint of him either mistreating or abusing or neglecting his team. My guest today is Carmen Fields. Uh, her new book is titled Going Back to T-Town, the Ernie Fields Territory Big Band. She's my guest today on Studio Tulsa. As I mentioned earlier, uh, you also tell the story of like the what life was like for territory bands, even more bands than Ernie Fields. You allude to several other bands as well. And you talk about this perilous at least in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, this perilous journey into the South when you don't know the customs, the local unwritten customs on how African Americans were to behave, uh, were expected by law enforcement and, and white community. And you talk about that sort of uncertainty, and it gives you a sense of really the the moral hazard that bands were doing going into the South because you never knew what the rules were. And, uh, you know, you, you detail a number of stories. There's a story of a, they were taking a train at one point and they stopped at Jacksonville and a, a young player who had just come on the band really wasn't used to the customs of what you were expected to do, had s- sat off by himself. And all of a sudden he was going to get rousted and taken to jail. And, uh, this was a pretty common occurrence. Mm-hmm. And um, also, I tried to emphasize that, yes, there were difficulties, but my father also took great pains to note that there were uh, upstanding white citizens who did not always go along with those customs and, in several instances, helped rescue him from unpredictable situations. And I, you know, uh, keep in mind, this is before the Green Book was even published. Right. Uh, and even after it was published, of all of the papers and things that uh, I had gone through and kept track of and donated, never saw a Green Book. So he was really dependent on the past experience of the other musicians on where they could go or where they could sleep, where they could eat. Or he was also a, a mason. And I'm sure that kind of network assisted in his uh, in his travels. Uh, one of my favorite stories is uh, one he tells of going into a small uh, grocery store or store, general store, and him and the musicians uh, went around and picked up uh, canned goods and whatever they wanted and then went up to the cashier and paid for their provisions. About that same time, two young black boys, maybe nine or ten, came in and observed uh, the musicians. And so they started picking up different items and going up to the cashier, handing them to them. And the cashier, the white cashier says to them, look, they're not from here, talking about the musicians. And next time you come in here, you do like you always do. You tell me what you want, and I'll get it for you, Mm -hmm. and you pay. 
So the kids are outside and uh, daddy was traveling in the bus and you know how buses have uh, in the front and the top portion, usually the destination of where they're headed and hit daddy's bus, it had Ernie Fields. So one of the kids looked up at that and said, I wonder where that is. <laughs> and the other kid says, must be up north somewhere. Yeah. One of the things you, you earlier mentioned, his friendship with Count Basie and how they would talk about opportunities or, or just you know talk about the business. Uh, another person who, who was very influential, I guess, in Ernie's career in various ways was Bob Wills. Very influential. You would not he think had a that. Very yeah. Close, respectful friendship. Bob Wills was helpful in a lot of ways it, when he was starting his band, as far as how to go to a small town and and make a living wage, if you will, uh, to uh, offering opportunities right here in Tulsa at the, at the Canes Ballroom. Indeed, uh, uh, my father was the first black organization to perform at Canes Ballroom, and. Uh, Bob Wills had threatened uh, if he didn't let Ernie Fields perform there, he would never perform there again. So he opened a very important door and he would from time to time mention my father's name to uh, places that wanted to book Bob Wills, but he was either occupied or had not available for the date. So he would give them Ernie Fields' name and they would call and uh, and say, Bob, I got your name from Bob Wills. He assured me we would be satisfied. Um, there's also uh, instances where he offered guidance on booking strategies, when to ask for a percentage of the door and how much percentage and what how much guarantee. Uh, they were really good buddies uh, in the business and, and learning, uh, opening doors and learning a strategy, business strategy. One of the th most interesting things I think about your father's career was, you know, he started out as uh, a traditional Southwestern uh, black swing band. I mean, that's what it was. It was it was based on the swing, and then when that style was sort of out of vogue and even. Uh, at one point, Count Basie had to drop down to a small group in the early 50s because taste had changed. He sort of reinvented himself. And when I was talking about R&B, I think people think of traditional contemporary R&B, but R&B in the 1950s was this soulful, you know, blues music and, uh, and, and sort of very much integrated with what would become rock and roll. And he really reinvented himself. And he you know, he was not af not afraid of using a gimmick to to entertain a crowd. Uh, he had one leg dancers uh, after World yeah. War Two. <laughs> I mean, it's a really interesting book uh, that tells about the times he lived in as much as the story of uh, of his life. Uh, it's titled Going Back to T-Town. Carmen Fields, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Television journalist Carmen Fields speaking with us here on Studio Tulsa about her father and her new book, Going Back to T-Town, the Ernie Fields Territory Big Band. It's published by the University of Oklahoma Press. She'll have a book launch party this Saturday afternoon at 1 o'clock at First Baptist Church, North Tulsa at 1414 North Greenwood. The public is invited. And then Saturday evening at 7 o'clock, she'll be signing and talking about the book at the Oklahoma Blues Hall of Fame in Rentiesville, Oklahoma. <laughs> 
We're going to leave you with music from the Ernie Fields Band. This is his hit from the early 1950s, a cover of Glenn Miller's In the Mood in the R&B style. Where Studio Tulsa is produced and edited by Scott Gregory. I'm Rich Fisher. Thanks so much for listening.